essentially what we're doing is we're giving the we're giving the audience a chance to come into our world to understand more about who we are in a way that is free of numbers and figures and sales pitches. It's just us as a human. I'm David Oti, and this is The Power of Story and Science, a mix of content and conversations on how to bring your science to life through powerful presentations. How does a trained engineer go from testing fuel cell membranes to being a team leader focused on relationships, communication, and people? In today's episode, you will hear a conversation I had with Jesse Hensley of the National Renewable Energy Laboratory here in Colorado. Listen as he describes how so many schools of thought have influenced his journey and his stories. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Power of Story and Science. I'm your host, David Oti, and on this show we have a mix of content and conversations on how you can be a more effective technical professional when you tell the story of your work. Today, I'm pleased to have as a guest for this conversation, Jesse Hensley of the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. Want to say hello, Jesse? Hello, everyone. Jesse and I met when I had occasion to give a talk for a group at NREL, as we call it, here in Golden, Colorado. And uh, we wanted to follow up on that with a, a conversation between the two of us. And so, Jesse, I'm going to let you take the lead here and tell us a little bit about um, what you do, how you got interested in what you're doing now, um, sort of your, uh, your story, in other words. Great. Thanks, David. Well, I got into my role quite by chance. I came out of my undergrad in college during a recession in 2003, and I could not find a job to save my life. So I went to work up in the mountains and found some work outdoors as a ski patroller and started to get worried after about a year that I was going to lose the benefit of my undergrad engineering degree. So I started hitting up local professors at universities to see if I could do anything to look like I was exercising my degree. So washing glassware, toasting bagels, whatever I needed to do. <laughs> okay, pretty, pretty broad, casting a pretty broad net, it sounds like. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I landed a position at the Colorado School of Mines to help a graduate student, and I was helping him do some experiments in a laboratory. And some professors there decided that they liked what I was doing and they asked me to stick around for grad school. And I said, uh, no thanks, I'm not interested in more education. And they said, no, we'll, we'll cover you on a grant. Just put your name on the paper. And I said, no, nah, not really interested. Then they said, how about you stay for a master's? It's just a year and a half. And if you like it, you can stick around for a PhD. So I said, I don't have a job. I'm not doing anything else anyway. Why not? Why not? <laughs> well, I stuck around. And it turned out that the master's was the part I didn't like. It was just the coursework. The PhD stuff is what I wanted to do. And I started to get into research, and I worked on fuel cell membrane materials and got back into the job world in 2007 in a much better economy and found myself at a startup. That startup was aiming to make fuels out of agricultural crop waste, 
and they failed catastrophically as many startups do. Oh no. Found myself at the National Renewable Energy Lab doing almost the same job because the the government was taking a much slower approach to solving this problem and not burning all their money in an instant. So I picked up the job and came on as a principal investigator and worked as a project leader and a researcher and eventually started to have an opportunity to mentor younger folks. So interns from undergrad, graduate students, maybe even postdoctoral researchers. And I, I started to really love the aspect of mentoring and teaching and helping those uh, younger folks understand how to do science. And that eventually got me to a group manager position where I now lead a group of, of engineers and scientists. And it's really changed my whole thinking about the profession of research and science. I've, I see, started off my journey thinking it was completely transactional and mathematical and something that could be figured about and written about. And I've come to learn that it, like many jobs, is all about relationships and communication and people. And all the rest tends to fall away without those three elements. And I, I love studying that and I love the opportunity to follow that passion and still call myself an engineer while I'm really more of a psychologist and a shoulder cry on and a strategist. Than what <laughs> I, do. I love it. I love it. Communications, relationships, and people, you said. Those are the three. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so you, you did get your PhD then, I guess, mm -hmm. right? From School of Mines? That's correct. Mm, okay. Um, that's quite a worthy credential. I mean, that's a, a challenging school, and I know they do very good work there. Uh, and so now you lead uh, scientists and engineers, you said, who are doing research? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, you acquired some very deep technical skills mm -hmm. around the things that you were researching, starting with fuel cell membranes and going from there to other things, obviously, and, and ways of, of uh, uh, you know, new sources of energy and things like that. Uh, and yet, that's not really so much what you're doing now. Now you're leading people who are doing that. Mm -hmm. And I'd like for you to, I don't know, to put it in academic terms, compare and contrast the two. What uh, Specifically, how did you get the additional skills you needed to do the things you're doing now that are different from what you were trained to do when you got your PhD? That's a great question. It's coming up number of forms. I think it really started with me in graduate school, going to things like academic conferences and trying to present my work. And I felt that my work was very important and that everyone should care about it. And that when if only someone came and listened to me, that they would see how brilliant I was and how much I had to offer the world and money would come pouring in and all that comes with it. <laughs> of course, of course. I would go to these conferences and there might be three people in the room for my talk. And those people happened to be the next up to the podium. They were only there because they had to be for their <laughs> session. No okay. one was coming. And that persisted into my professional career. And I, I was trying to figure out this puzzle of why, how, how can I be doing so much work and spending so much research money and, 
in my mind, making such a contribution, and nobody's out there to notice this. I, I tend to not like to be narcissistic. I don't like to promote myself on social media. It's just not in my blood. And I was really kind of having a problem with this because I thought this, you know, what's the point of even doing the work if no one's going to listen? And I'm just going to interrupt and underscore what you just said. What's the point of doing the work if no one's going to listen? Yeah, absolutely. If people don't know of your work, how can it change the world? Of course. And there is something to be said about talking yourself up on social media, but eventually that becomes saturated too. You can only have so many followers. They're only going to have so much influence. And at the end of the day, if I'm trying to get the attention of a venture capitalist in California, it's not going to happen by any of those channels. It's just not. Mm. I really wanted to know, you know, as a researcher, I like to do experiments. I wanted to know why, why does this happen? And that led me to a lot of, of reading on the subject and also to get into a local Toastmasters club and maybe understand, maybe I just suck at speaking. And that's the problem. And I found out that, no, that wasn't necessarily the problem. Yes, I needed lots of work. But the problem was that I wasn't connecting. And after going to a few keynotes of great speeches who were not in the technical fields, I learned a couple of very important things. Uh, One, I think, comes out of James Covey, uh, which is the quote, no one cares how much you know until you know they know how much you care. That one is burned in my brain. And another one was from the Buddha, which was uh, something along the lines of, if you love what you do, you will always be happy. And so that w- those two were big pieces of the puzzle for me, that A, I didn't need to try to seek people's approval. I just needed to be happy in what I was doing. Why? That changed the way I approached my communication because I didn't care what people thought. And because I didn't care what people thought, it humanized me because I, I didn't come across as someone who was trying to one-up somebody else. I wasn't trying to get my work noticed, my ideas funded. I was just sharing my experience of what I love. And that's non-threatening. It's non-confrontational, and it's easier for people to to approach. And also, by showing people how much I care, I I noticed that until I showed a deep interest in other people's work, they weren't going to show an interest in mine. Oh, I love that. Let me me underscore that as well. Until you showed a deep interest in other people's work, they weren't going to show the interest in yours. That's profound, because I often say that all effective communication starts with listening. And so you had to listen to what other researchers had to say. Absolutely. Absolutely. And something very interesting came out of that in that by listening to other people, I started to notice how poorly they conveyed their ideas. Ah, okay. I was listening. I was listening with the intention of understanding them. And what I understood from them was, I can't follow this. This is too much. I don't know what you're, I know what you're doing. If I'm, if I'm awake and alert and had some coffee, I can follow what you did and how you did it, but I don't know why you did it. And I don't know why. why. Okay. Yeah. Right. 
And that, that was another trigger for me was start with why. Mm-hmm. And not, perhaps not coincidentally, I found a great talk by Simon Sinek on YouTube. I think it's one of the top 10 talks of all time called Start With Why. And it was such a validating experience to watch that video because I hadn't processed it in my head, what, what I was really thinking. I knew it unconsciously. But when Simon Sinek put it in the form of Start With Why, I was like, that's it. That is what I've been missing is I, I have a why and I am not presenting my why. And that is what people want from me. They don't care about the details. Sure. When it comes to the, the book work, accounting, fine details, due diligence, yeah, they want to know the what they want to know the how, but when I'm doing that main communication, when I'm trying to inspire or gain in interest in my ideas, I ha- it's all about why. They want to know that I have a why that is worthy of their attention and consideration. A why that is worthy of their consideration. Okay, so you just gave me the title for this episode. Okay. <laughs> it's going to be Present Your Why. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not going to say start with why, because I'm pretty sure uh, Simon Sinek's book by that title is on the bookshelf behind me, so we're not going to borrow that title. Uh, right. But the why, uh, you're right. I come back to that uh, a lot when I'm, when I'm coaching people and, and talking about presentations, is the why is what engages people. You used a word a little while ago, and, and I was kind of waiting for you to circle back to that and see how that... Uh, tied in with what some of what you were saying it's a word i use a lot and that word is connect you're okay. saying that you were speaking that you had good speaking skills and and mm-hmm. you've been in toastmasters who built those speaking skills but that you didn't connect how has that changed for you well it's been a bit of trial and error in learning what works and doesn't and communicating with people but there is a a lesson they teach in Toastmasters about using stories to connect with your audience. And stories, especially vivid stories that have something that resonates with someone, whether it's a, a memory, a sight, a smell, some weird fact that, that sticks in their head. Using those stories connects us in our deepest ways because we are storytelling creatures as humans. That's how we have communicated for eons. And only now do we have written word and printing presses and PDFs and PowerPoints that didn't just disappear in our genetic makeup. When we invented the computer or the printing press, we're still storytelling creatures. And I have come to believe, and many others have hypothesized that that's a way we build trust with each other is we listen to each other's stories and we put ourselves in those stories or we, we relate to those stories with our own stories. And essentially what we're doing is we're giving the, we're giving the audience a chance to come into our world, to understand more about who we are in a way that is free of numbers and figures and sales pitches it's just us as a human. And it gives them a chance to recognize that it's okay to open up to our ideas, that we're not a threat, that we're part of the tribe, 
that mm. it's that is they don't have to be on guard about. And I don't know why people come into these interactions on guard, but it, they do. It, you know, everybody who's not my friend is someone I don't know and I don't trust until I know them and they're my friend. And yeah, I think about driving in traffic, right? If it was, if someone cuts you off in traffic and you don't know that person, you're likely to curse them. Well, what if that happens to be your best friend and you recognize them immediately? You might still curse them, but <laughs> not in the same way. You're right. You're going to you're going to think to yourself, "Oh, that's my friend. I'm going to get them back for this." <laughs> way. Or find out why they were in such a hurry. I don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it, there's because such a difference. Because you tell yourself a different story about what just of happened. Of course. Yeah. Of course, yeah. That is all so powerful what you just said. I'm so glad we're having this conversation because I love to talk about the importance of story for building trust and making connections with people. Can you give me an example of how you've used story in an otherwise technical presentation? Mm -hmm. I've used story many times to relay common experience in the laboratory in a technical presentation. So I might start my technical presentation with a story about an experiment that went awry or something that happened to me serendipitously that I wasn't expecting that I had to, I had to do a double take and rethink my hypotheses or my approach. And the reason I do that is because First of all, it cools my nerves. It's really easy to recount a story because you lived it. You're just recalling a memory. You're not trying to hit the perfect opener. You're just telling a story, and that's easy to do, like riding a bike. So it gets you in, it gets you calmed down, it gets you into the speech, and it takes away the nerves. The other thing it does is it puts you on common ground with those researchers that are in your audience because they can relate. Maybe not to the exact experience, but they're, they're being presented with this well-dressed, PhD-educated, highly published individual who's going to tell them a thing or two about research. That's scary. Yeah. <laughs> and now that person comes in and says... You're not going to believe my day last week when I dropped a jug of acetic acid on the ground and all the things that followed from that that ruined my day but actually led to an interesting discovery that I'm going to tell you about in a, later in this presentation that I never would have even noticed had I not had I actually tied my shoes that day and not tripped over my laces. <laughs> I love it. It changes the narrative. It. It, it, it does. It changes the approach for them because now, now they're kind of interested to hear about this, this experience that they, they might have themselves. And they're not going to be told about something. They're going to get to share in my experience. Very different approach. Very different experience for the audience. And it it helps if nothing else to wake them up because it's so unusual in technical talks for them to be, to, for them to start like that. They're expecting, I'm going to put up an outline 
and I'm going to use some big words, and I'm going to throw up some big graphs. They've seen it the last 10 talks in a row, and you're just going to be the next one, and then boom, hey, this guy's talking about cleaning up an acid spill. What's going on here? It gets their attention back. It does. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And as you say, they just sat through 10 other presentations that were the same thing over and over again. Today, mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you this and show you these graphs that are too dense for you to grasp on the screen, but I'm going to show them to you anyway. Um, do you have any questions? Right. Uh, what That raises a question in my mind. How do we get more people who give technical presentations to do what you do and to deviate from that standard that they've seen set by others and to realize mm -hmm. they can do something better how do we give how do we uh, convince people of the benefit of actually connecting with their audience and doing something different from those other presentations well i have a couple of thoughts on the matter one is that by changing up your game you're going to stand out from a crowded field and in the technical world standing out in a crowded field is important so blending in is not your friend. Blending in is not your friend. I like that. Very well put. Now, that's pretty vague. Another challenge I might have to listeners would be to think about your own experiences giving technical presentations and how you felt about them. How did the audience react to you? How was your reception afterward? Did you get anything out of it? And how, how much of a risk are you taking by trying something different? Are you really going to lose that opportunity if you try something different? I did just that at a few conferences in the past, and I got sick of the constant cycle of showing up and everyone falls asleep in my presentation. And I put in my time, but boy, why did I spend so many, so many hours on those slides? Oh, yeah. I've had and that experience. I tried, I tried just making it so incredibly simple that the back of my mind, I was thinking, I'm I am providing zero information effectively to the scientific community in this talk, but at least I'm going to make it interesting. And you know, the interesting thing about that is, in those talks where I talked about nothing in particular, I had the most reception afterward. I had more people coming up to me, asking for my card, wondering what I did, how they can get access to my papers. And I think it's just because they were interested enough in what I was saying to be awake for long enough, to have seen my face for long enough, that it triggered something unconscious in their head that said, well, I paid attention to this guy for a while. He must be a big deal. <laughs> must be a big deal. Okay. And I, I, it, it could be as simple as that, right? Maybe people think you're a big deal based on how much of your attention they grabbed. Because you must be a big deal if you held their attention at a boring conference. You must be. Must and it, be. Must it be. Played out because that you held their attention. As a matter of fact, I went to, I went to a conference on methanol. Talk about boring. This is a big trade conference on methanol and shipping it around the globe. And there was a lady who came up on stage to give a keynote. And she was doing it amongst a bunch of economic projections with bar charts and line charts and interest rates and all that sort of thing. And she hopped up and she put up one slide of a cow chewing its cud in a field, in a nice green field. And then a few slides later, 
or a few minutes later, rather, she put up her second slide, which was a different cow in a different field. And she was making a point about using the dairy industry to produce methanol. Her talk was by far the most memorable of the whole event. She got the most reception afterward. I couldn't get it in edgewise to talk to this, this woman because I had some questions myself. People were just in rapture because she just told a story about what cows do. And they had a nice image of a cow and they could see, okay, that's what that cow is doing. And it was very interesting and engaging. And then it equaled money somehow, right? Everyone remembered cows equal money. They don't remember how. They don't remember. <laughs> but they do remember, okay. I need to talk to Rebecca, yeah, the CEO of Oberon Fuels, if I want to go make money out of my cows. That's all they remembered. And they remembered, you know, th that's what they took away from the conference, right? That's there what wasn't took away. a mm -hmm. chart in that presentation. There was not a single numerical figure. So the the only visuals were the cows. Just the cows. There's the cows and the story of the cows. Cows and the story of the cows. Wow, that that's a great story. I I can just picture that, and I can picture all those people crowding around her and wanting to talk to her afterward, because Absolutely. she made a difference. Mm -hmm. She made a difference because she did something memorable. Exactly. Wow. Um, that, that's a terrific insight. I, I've so enjoyed our conversation. I, I love how you brought up the importance of story, the importance of the why, that these are how you connect with people. And without that connection, nothing happens. That's right. What is one thing you know now that you wish somebody had taught you much sooner? Well, it's a bit off of the topic of the presentation, but it's related is that I am not that important. And that is incredibly hard to hear for people in technical fields, I think especially because we, we are coached to sell the importance of our ideas. And I wish that I would have been trained that my ideas weren't so important because in in losing that, I have gained importance. It, it's abstract, and it actually tends to have ties in Eastern, some Eastern religions where the more you try to grasp something, the less you can have it. The, the more you give it up, the more you gain it. And by giving up that drive to show how important I was, I could let all of that ego-driven bluster fall away and then people could connect with me and when people connected with me and found out who i was i became so much more important to them than any of my data and papers and figures and if i could have bypassed that it would have been great this this futile fight to, for relevance that was pointless futile fight for relevance wow mm -hmm. and when people connect with you that's what makes that's what makes you important. It's not the, not the information, not the facts and figures. Exactly. Now, this has been, this has been deeply insightful. I'm looking forward to going back and listening to our conversation again, <laughs> <laughs> because we've covered such interesting ground. Um, I, I feel like I could just keep talking to you for a long, long time. Uh, however, I'm going to, 
honor the time and draw the conversation to a close because you have given my audience a lot to think about in the less than half an hour that we've been talking. Um, is there uh well i i i don't i was gonna ask you for a final thought but that last one you gave us was was so profound it's a good thought to end on so let me just ask you this how could uh members of my audience follow up with you is there a way uh, you'd like to hear from people or a, a place you want to send them you can certainly find me on linkedin at jesse hensley i don't log into social media that often, maybe no more than every couple of weeks. So if you send me an invite and you haven't received the acceptance, don't worry. It just means I'm not a slave of social media. You can also email me at jesse.hensley at nrel.gov. And perhaps you can spell it out in your... Sure. I'll put it on the screen for the video version and, and in the program notes as well. I'll, I'll just go ahead and plug your email address in there so anybody that finds the mm -hmm. program will, will be able to, to follow up with you that way. Thank you for sharing that information. Um, because I would imagine that a lot of people uh, are, are curious about the things that you've been talking about, um, about how the, the, the evolution of what you do from the very technical skills to this much broader realm of what we, I think, somewhat unfortunately call soft skills, the things that are not as easily measurable and quantifiable and yet are so important in the workplace, that connecting with people and understanding that, that uh, relationships and communication and people are really what it's all about. Um, that's... Uh, that's a tremendous insight. So thank you, Jesse, for having this conversation with me. Of course. It's been my pleasure. And anyone who would like to follow up with me can find the homepage of this program by going to storyandscience.com. And when you explore that site, you can uh, find uh, buttons that will allow you to, to jump on my calendar and schedule a discovery call with me, because I always love to hear from my audience members about uh, what you've heard, what you've taken away, what you might still be wondering about. Or as a teacher I admire greatly, who uh, was my uh, a kindergarten for two of my uh, a kindergarten teacher for two of my daughters, uh, he would say, "What did you notice and what did you wonder?" And I just think, you know, between those two queries, that encompasses so much. So if there's anything that you wonder or anything you notice about this program you'd like to talk to me about, please connect with me that way. And as always, thank you for being part of the story and science community. This has been the power of story and science. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend, leave us a review, or so that you don't miss anything, subscribe at Podbean or wherever you like to get your podcasts. This program is a production of Speaking of Solutions, LLC. Theme music by Kevin Lufkin. I'm David Odie. Thanks for listening.